Welcome to the Pop Cult Podcast. Here are your hosts Ariana and Seth. This is the Pop Cult Podcast. I'm Seth. I'm Ariana. And today we're going to be continuing what we're doing all April, which is going back to 1995 and filling in some movie gaps. Later, we'll be talking about what might be the most controversial movie we've ever discussed on the podcast. Yeah. But before we get to that, we are going to talk about Gus Van Sant's uh, drama, media, expose-ish kind of movie, To Die For. Uh, To Die For stars uh, Nicole Kidman as Suzanne Stone, a weather reporter at her small-town cable station. She dreams of being a big-time news anchor, though. Uh, However, she feels her middle-class husband, played by Matt Dillon, uh, is holding her back, so she decides to have him murdered. For this, she enlists Jimmy, played by a baby-faced Joaquin Phoenix, a high school boy who is enamored with her. The plan doesn't work exactly as she intended, and her husband's family starts to suspect that she was involved in his death. Uh, So, Ariana, uh, I'm not sure if you've ever seen any movies by Gus Van Sant. Uh, Goodwill Hunting is probably the most famous one of his. Uh, he did Milk. Oh, I think we saw Don't Worry, He Won't Get Too Far, which also, also starred Joaquin Phoenix. It was about the disabled cartoonist. Yeah, which I thought were like better films. I also saw Milk with you, but um, but it's this is from that. The, I guess you would call it Gus Van Sant's, you know, first period of work because he yeah. comes out of doing things like My Own Private Idaho, and and he it's. I think just before Goodwill Hunting, so we're in that early period. Yeah. Uh, so, what did you think of To Die For? I thought it was a mid movie. I thought that um, although there were very good performances, I wish that they'd gone a little bit deeper. Um, it ultimately, like, it gets a, not that it gets confusing. I think the method that it's going for, it's almost mockumentary setting before a lot of us gotten used to that setting i would i would argue a little differently but i think you're on to something yeah you're sensing that like the movie doesn't come together at the end in the way that you would hope it would yes and like nicole kidman is very good in the film yes. however there are parts of me that almost wish that amy, amy adams had taken over well, like she was too young at that yeah time but it's like there, it, it's like the confident idiot, right? Yeah. But unfortunately, I think it's also, it feels a little bit muddled because although that this character has like all these things that she wants to participate and do, she doesn't feel as if she's going as far as needed or at that, at least the result makes sense of what she's doing because it's so minimal over and like the... Uh, like over killing her husband over almost like the little that she has to keep that and the, grow from it the justification of the murder is very weak yeah and then matt dylan is barely in the film yeah and so, i feel like he's not a bad actor they could have done a lot they, more with it him felt because i do kind of vaguely remember this film being promoted i think it was like heavily promoted on mtv at some point well talk about the promotion that i would want to say on when this film came out I, I would have been like 14 at the time. And I remember it. they were trying to sell it in the same vein as something like Basic Instinct or Showgirls. Yeah. And like, it, that was kind of a genre in the 90s, the like erotic thriller. Yeah. Where like, and then later you'd have things uh, like, 
striptease or something like that, where like the whole point of the movie was the scandal surrounding the movie and that it was like, oh, you're going to see this famous actress like naked. Or in which sexual doesn't... positions and stuff like that. And it doesn't. And this movie is not an erotic thriller. No. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. You see her like in lingerie. But or it's like not in like. A shirt, but it's not very as a like. Yeah, it's, it's not played as like, ooh, like the, the not... fellas in the audience are going to get it's off on this. It's not a sexual thriller, yeah. especially because like Joaquin Phoenix plays almost on the verge of like mentally disabled like mentally handicapped yeah like it gets to the point that you feel like really sad it's basically like a charming confident idiot comes over and takes over uh, a mentally disabled person person who is just enamored with her and you don't really get the sensation of it being like oh man that was really satisfying. It did remind me of like this book that we both read that had to do with like this woman. Um, oh, uh, Tampa by Alyssa yes. Nutting. I thought of that there too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, there is like, but like, I like that book much better than yeah, this movie. But I think it just, she doesn't feel as cunning as necessary in order to explain it. And then the ending kind of just dissolves. It's like, sugar in the middle of rain you're just like oh that's it well the ending feels was, completely disconnected from the rest of the movie and it, but it, <laughs> where you're like oh that's how it ends it, oh okay and then it also just feels so dissatisfying because it's sort of like oh it doesn't have the bite that it should have no it just it, there's well, something very lacking well so the structure of the movie is what would probably stand out to someone who hasn't seen it or doesn't really know much about it is it's non-linear and it's composed of you know, fake documentary footage, fake news reports, interviews with the people involved, but then also standard film narrative scenes that are not being recorded in universe. It's just people having conversations in private. Yeah. And I think there's a way to do this movie mixed media. I think of uh, Saturday Morning All-Star Hits is a, a thing that is a satire and commentary on media that never breaks from the structure that it yeah. presents itself as. So everything that you see on that show uh, by Kyle Mooney is within the program that you're watching. This can, it, it does, the, it's a very frustrating thing for me whenever I see a movie that wants to be a media satire and they have so many scenes that are like, oh, it's the person being interviewed for a documentary or a news reporter talking to someone. That when so much of your movie is that, to then cut to non, um, I guess it would be like diegetic. I don't know what the adjective would be, but like non uh, in-universe media. And then it's just, oh, this is just a scene from a movie. Yeah. It's, it is, there's a little, it's a little off-putting. Like it doesn't yeah. flow as well. And then when you add on to the fact that it's already a non-linear movie, yeah. now it's even more disorienting because you're trying to figure out where we are in the timeline. And for the most part, the movie does a pretty good job of making sure you're there. But there are moments where you just are like, now where are we and what's happening? Or else like, I thought Natural Born Killers is another movie that this yeah. is trying to be and it's not succeeding. Where Natural Born Killers is able to do that weird fucked up mix of media because it's kind of showing us what's inside those people's heads projected onto the screen. Mm -hmm. And this is not that. Well, I think it also has to do the fact that, like, because part of the structure of the story is 
trying to almost fake us out with the interview setting, but it gets confusing because there's um there's this two sets of parents. Um, it's Suzanne's parents and Larry's parents being interviewed on a talk show. Her parents are played. It's Holland Taylor, who Sarah Paulson's wife, and uh, yeah. she's in tons of stuff. And then Kurtwood Smith, who most people are going to know from that '70s show, or like RoboCop. Yeah. And then uh, Matt Dillon, Larry's parents, uh, Maria Tucci, who is very familiar looking to me, and she's probably a character actress I've seen a ton. Yeah. And then Dan Hadaya, who's also another character actor. He was in like Cheers. And yeah, stuff and up. then like you have that setting, and then anyone else who's being interviewed is being interviewed like in what we call like maybe their natural habitat. So the sister is being interviewed in an ice rink. With a ton of people around, and well, then like, yeah, her. The, we'll talk about Ileana Douglas yeah, here in a minute. And yeah. then uh, Lydia, who's a teenager that participated in the whole thing, it's like her backyard or something, being interviewed at her house, and she's sitting like on top of a car. And then Joaquin Phoenix's character is being interviewed in prison. Um, it's Suzanne, we it's we don't know where she is. She's a it's a white background. It's not, it's not until the end that we figure out where she is oh, yeah. because they're trying to fake us out. But because it is so disorienting, um, it gets kind of confusing as to who and why is making this documentary. Yeah, the, the one thing I found that in like in mockumentaries, there's often a moment where the people making the documentary play some sort of role as characters. Or you can hear their voice in the background being like, let's ask about this. Well, because like, you know, this is Spinal Tap. Rob Reiner is in the movie as the director making it or yeah, like you said, scenes where like in the office, there were moments near the end of the series where someone from off camera asks, you finally hear their voice. Like when yeah. Michael leaves or something. It's like, um, and then there's like Ed who was her employer eats at work. And he mentions offhand when he's showing a bit of a thing that she had recorded because he owned the tapes. He's like, Oh, Geraldo news. Like he's Geraldo. Geraldo news this. Yeah. And he starts mentioning other people and how they got money from of it. But we don't so understand it, like who's making this documentary and what's the purpose. Yeah. And there's so, no like, thesis to the documentary. So by mentioning that it kind of just becomes this weird thing of like, is he just having a random conversation with a reporter and they there happens to be a camera? Yeah. Like we don't like, get are all these interviews being done by the same person or not? Yeah, like don't get a gist of like and in documentaries like there's a lot of times there's people that are very neutral or people that are wanting to understand like the reasons for the crime or if that person really did it or not but there's just it's yeah, this, it feels very much like someone's making a true crime thing like almost dateline or something yeah and it doesn't feel like because at the beginning of the film it's supposed to be like bomb set uh, like uh, bomb like sexy blonde has her husband killed but it's a sensationalizing yeah we it, think yeah. it's sensationalized but we get there and it's just it's meh uh, i want to talk about some of the casting i think nicole kidman is pretty much perfect mm -hmm. in the role like she nails it she's very believable we already said matt dylan wasted in the movie he just that the part of larry is very unsubstantial for someone who's supposed to be such a major factor in the story yeah like and like make us hate him or so we're us... conflicted and we're like well she's doing this for a bad reason but you know he's a horrible husband he's never a bad husband oh, also make him so <laughs> like unbelievably lovable yeah like, go the opposite bad. direction but we don't really get that we just get like i, I don't really know who he is like I would say that I Joaquin Phoenix to me, I think was the weakest yes, part of the movie. Was... It, I don't believe him as that character. It feels like an actor 
delivering lines very slowly yeah it felt like somebody trying to be quirky but they don't know how to be quirky and weird yeah and he's and i mean he was young at the time and he's he's grown a lot more i don't know why casey affleck is in this movie they needed someone to play the asshole yeah he's just there i guess casey affleck in real life is a giant asshole so he works uh but Ileana Douglas is the best part of this movie. I uh, yes, she is. I thought she felt very sympathetic. She is whenever she's talking about her brother being murdered, the emotions that are being conveyed feel like genuine grief to me, like someone who just cuz uh, there's these parts where she like talks about him even though he's dead and you can tell that the character is forgetting that he's dead because she's talking about her brother who she loved, right? He was a big part of her life. And then whenever she has to talk about the fact that he's dead now and who's responsible for it, like the rancor and spite that she has feels very genuine. Yeah. Uh, And I think she was, if I'm looking at, you know, everyone in this movie in terms of the bigger roles in it, she was the best part in the movie. Uh, I think I liked her a little better than I did Nicole Kidman. I... I don't think I was drawn to her, but it probably has to do with the fact that like her being interviewed in an ice rink really threw me off because it's sort of like Well, she's part of like a touring yeah, ice like but it's also like skating but company I think it's or also something. Just this weird thing of having the interview there when it's such a touch like uh touchy subject. Well, I feel like they were probably trying to pull in making it reference like the Tanya Harding thing because that was the previous year. Yeah. And that was another sensationalized media thing. And, like, it's also like the I think like there were hints, at least to me in the movie, that her character was gay. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. that like they didn't really want to say it out loud. And I thought like it was It was like, a weird choice. It I think it was just more as if like you had a much more interesting character who you don't really give much of a background only to come in when a little bit of conflict is needed. Because whenever, for example, that like Matt Damon's character, Larry, finally puts his foot down and is like going to tell like Suzanne that he wants to start a family soon and that he's going to take over his dad's business. And that's when like Suzanne is kind of like enraged because she doesn't tell her husband like, oh, hey, but I'm really working hard on something. Like, can we just postpone having kids? Because he's basically telling her like to stop doing the weather stuff and just edit videos for any big occasions that are being done in the restaurant so they can work together and like it's supposed to be that Suzanne is sort of like no put your foot down tell give her an ultimatum like but even when he gives the ultimatum it doesn't feel like an ultimatum well I think that may be part of the character is that she was into him before they got married because of what she imagined he would be like Mm -hmm. and he is a very wishy-washy passive guy and she is someone who's very determined, very ambitious. And so that's meant to be the conflict. I just don't think the film communicates no, that as best I as it could. It's supposed to be that like he is basically like a welcome mat into her having a better life. Yeah. But it's we don't get like any information as if like she's just seemed like a spoiled child who well, came from a nice family. Well, and even then, like we talk about the parents, they have some pretty great supporting actors there and they don't really use them that much no like i thought like kurtwood smith is an actor who i think is very good and so is holland taylor and they just don't they're just kind of pop up for some scenes make some comments about suzanne 
but we never get like a great scene with them and her. No. And like there's also not really a lot of great scenes between like Larry and his parents. No. And like that's also kind of a waste. Well, and then there's like little things like uh, George Siegel, mm-hmm. who people might know from like Just Shoot Me. That's where I first noticed who he was. He has a great scene in this movie. And it's a one scene moment where he's like a television producer who she meets at a convention when they're on their honeymoon. Yeah. And he's making like very obvious sexual advances towards her. And he's such a creep and so gross. Mm -hmm. And like, he's only in the movie for one scene. I kept thinking he was going to show up again. Yeah. like That's it. Yeah. With such high expectations as you have for her. Cause it's like, she in the film it's supposed to be like she is so ambitious that she plans their like honeymoon to be in florida without telling him without the, telling yeah. her husband that like there's a news anchor thing going on that she's gonna go in and see if she can make any connections but he thinks oh since i love fishing she wants me to go fishing and that's great but she gets nothing out of it except the uh, being harassed and then like the story about this woman that apparently like gave a letter to a producer's like oh and she gives the best like blow job that will pop your eyes out kind of shit only for her to use it on a small local level yeah like person who she's almost about to give the letter to but then decides not to because she realizes he's not really like the top dog like we don't see her like really like going like cutthroat to achieve what yes to achieve. and that's i kept thinking like oh we're seeing the beginnings and then we're gonna see her you know almost like a night crawler i think would be a good yeah. double feature where you see jake gyllenhaal's character really just descend into like the depths of depravity or something girls yeah like showgirls like she like the main character pushes her mentor down like the stairs in her yeah. mentor's like yeah that's what and like suzanne convinces someone else to kill her husband and so it's that's bad for sure right and it's you know they're high school students so that's bad but it just there's something that doesn't it doesn't feel as visceral as i felt it could have been where you just see like a savagery in her no but i think like the overarching theme of the movie is the film is very clear in what it's about it's one of those movies where like thematically it's a sledgehammer it's about sort of people who are so ambitious that they want to be famous at any cost and you know of course this is coming after what we said tanya harding and the media circus around that the oj trial and the media circus around that and these sort of like becoming famous or more famous by becoming by doing criminal acts yeah and the problem for me is that it's clear that it wants to say something about that and then we get to the third act and the conclusion doesn't have anything really to do with any of that. No. It has to do with a totally separate thing. And I guess maybe it's meant to be played as like ironic. Like, oh, while well, you were paying attention to this, you didn't notice this. But even that is a weak attempt. I mean, like the ending is so weak. And it's also mentioned in the first act when the parents are being interviewed with the concern about like um, Larry's family heritage being italian and that they're connected to the mob and that they're connected to the mob only for it to be a haha moment at the end that they are but there was uh, nothing in between that like built that or developed it like or even seeing like the parents make like not even saying anything but just for example sitting at the kitchen's table quiet and then one of them makes a call 
to someone and you, we don't know what's going on. We just know like they're making a call or like. Well, and the hitman is played, uh, if I remember, but David Cronenberg, yeah. <laughs> the director David Cronenberg has a cameo as a mafia hitman. Uh, but yeah, it's it also feels that because it was trying to say this thing about television in 1995, it's very dated. Even like it probably became dated not too long after the movie itself came out, because you think about the prominence of the Internet as soon as you hit the early 2000s and how it feels kind of quaint to be worried about television now when you're like, oh, the television has nothing on the Internet, man. That's the thing that will like destroy your soul. But I think it's also like this sad thing of it being like it just feels like a sexless sexist movie a sexist movie because it's like nicole kitman's character is just supposed to be way too ambitious she's supposed to be she's ambitious with nothing to show for it right which is really fucking bizarre for me yeah because it's like she still like even after she killed him it didn't help her job well it's not as if she was already working when she met him or that she yeah. was applying. It was supposed to be she got married and then she starts sending out her resume, which is was so fucking weird. Yeah, because you would think she'd already be on this path and, like, so, and see him as, oh, he's an essential piece. I need a husband. Yeah, it's sort of like, and it was also like this weird thing of like, she has that like uh, moment with like that TV producer, like played by George uh, Siegel. Siegel. And you think for a second, like, oh, is she gonna, like, is she playing dumb? Yeah, that's what I thought. I was like, oh, this is really smart. Like, but it turns out she isn't playing dumb. She's She's just dumb. (laughs) His, like, advice for real. But it just, it felt all over the place. And that's why I just ended up not really liking it. And it's this weird thing. It's supposed to be, like, if she's such a, she, like, it's like, she's such a fuck up. She, like, she's so ambitious about, like, her own life but we don't see her achieving anything interesting like it would have been interesting yeah. like, oh she was like the weather girl and then like um ed loses her to, to like a city or something yeah or like the bigger channel notices her and starts giving yeah. her a job and her husband starts getting like upset because you know she's working more often but instead it's supposed to be like larry is cool with her working late at night yeah he never really pushes back on anything she's doing which is once again why you're like Okay, I mean, I feel like you could kind of get away with every whatever she wanted to, ultimately. Like, like, no, I don't want to have kids. And, like, just wait it off. But if you had been a little more domineering or, like, a little more, like, like, if he had been incredibly nice, at least we could have had an opinion on him. And ultimately, like you said before, I just don't care. (laughs) I'm like, okay, I mean, he seems neutral. It's, like, this weird thing is, like, for example, we watched Election. And how it, like, very strong that, opinions and watching that movie switched up even afterwards when we realized like when we first saw it, everybody thought that like Tracy was a bitch only yeah. for now for us to be like no Tracy was a child it was her teacher and it was like it was, that was horrible like you could watch it and notice like the change and shift and being like oh my god this film is uh, the film and the book are much more interesting than this but this is just gross at the end well of I would the day. say movies that do this better. If you're looking for something contemporaneous, so in the 90s, I would say John Waters' Serial Mom. If you want to watch a suburban woman, like, lose her mind. Because there's, like, it's such a juicy role for uh, Kathleen Turner in that movie. And she's able to just go fucking wild. 
And Suzanne never does that. Even like when she's off camera, we never really see her show a side of herself that she's not showing in front of the camera. Sexy, quote unquote, like for example, she starts dancing outside in the rain in front of the car. It it didn't come off as seduction to me. It just came off that she's childish. Yeah. 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 It's like there isn't, there aren't two sides to her. Which I don't know if that's the point, and if it is the point that she's so shallow, I don't really understand what they're trying to say with that. Yeah. Uh, and then another movie I think that does this character far, far better, Gone Girl. Yeah. If you want to see a movie about the media, about a husband who you fucking hate, <laughs> about a a complicated antagonist, because essentially in Gone Girl, Ben Affleck is the protagonist of the movie. He's the yeah. main character. And his wife is this complicated antagonist that you like, you want to hate her, but then you like things about her, but you're also terrified of her. (laughs) And like, that's something that this movie just fails to do with Suzanne, who should be a terrifying figure, right? Like that character should be this like Machiavellian manipulating this high school student, like ruining his life and then having like no guilt about it. And like reveling in it almost. And we, it's so lukewarm. Everything about this movie is just like tepid. Yeah. Um, it's also, it's a very angry movie. Like you can tell that the people involved are angry about something. They're just never able to clearly articulate what they're mad about. And it's so angry that it makes the themes very incoherent. Yeah. Cause I, it's not as if like they went like, oh, media, bad, bad media. It just—it was more like fame, but then I didn't understand exactly. Was, like, what do you mean? It was this weird thing about fame, but it's also sort of like I feel like so if someone were to remake this like film and then maybe talk about how like journalists have changed over the years, mm, where you see yeah. like you didn't need to have your appearance be so important versus now. Another movie that did that better: James L. Brooks's Broadcast News with yeah. William Hurt and Albert Brooks and Holly Hunter. It's like, that's what that's about. And it does a very good job of showing you, oh, the media has gotten worse because it's become more superficial. Yeah. This doesn't even really say that. No, because like there's a few times that, for example, Suzanne is so obsessed with her craft. She starts mentioning other people. It starts mentioning like um, their bodies. And it's sort of like, instead of maybe also just having her be like, that she's fascinated with journalists, but she's like talking about like their features in a more in-depth manner where it could make you feel like uncomfortable. They didn't even go that route. Cause for example, Lydia, one of the teenagers that helps out with what's going on is supposed to be considered overweight, even though she is like straight side. There is nothing wrong with her body. Going back and watching movies from the nineties and having them talk about someone being fat is one of the most eye-opening experiences I think anyone in America could have because you're you're like, what is fat about? This person just looks normal. It's what are like you talking about? Looks like size eight in jeans, US eight, and then you're which is normal, yeah. which is average, and they're just like, oh, look at her, she's fat. Well, she, that actress Allison Folland is one who hasn't really had a big lucrative career since this compared to like her co-stars. But I thought of the three high school characters. She was the most interesting to me. She was the one that it felt authentic. Yeah, a teenager. And I kind of also 
there there was another miss opportunity because they do make it seem like they got really close and then like, Lydia and Suzanne yeah Suzanne's like oh your lesbianic tendencies but it's it, you end up just feeling like really sad for Lydia because she's hanging out with these boys who are like kind of just juvenile delinquents and like horrible clearly at the end of the day. like mentally disabled to an extent telling her like it's this ex- exploitation where like she tells Suzanne this horrible thing that she basically was molested by her stepfather <laughs> and that like oh that but she knows where to keep the gun and that's when suddenly Suzanne's like oh I'm gonna kill my husband yeah it, and like instead of us seeing like maybe Suzanne even further manipulating Lydia we don't really see it and therefore it just isn't it, interesting it feels like a lot happens off camera which is not what you want in a movie that's about the media it should be we get a lot of things or like they didn't even try to play up the conflicting uh test accounts right do like a rashomon thing where suzanne has a version of what happened jimmy has a version of what happened lydia has a version of what happened and they kind of leave it up to us to figure out like well where's the truth in all of this yeah like that that would have been an interesting angle it was written by buck henry which is very disappointing to me because uh younger listeners if those even exist i really don't think they do Mm -hmm. uh might not know who he is but uh he you know pretty famous comedian and writer i think i want to say he co-created get smart uh but he was also the screenwriter of the graduate which we just recently watched for our comedy masterwork series and that film is a masterpiece but i think you also had mike nichols working with buck henry's script and those two things together added up to something really good Gus Van Sant as a director for me, he's never been someone that I like flock to see his movies. And I have varying opinions of his stuff. I really like his movie Elephant. Um, but then other movies like Last Days, his film that is a fictionalized depiction of like Kurt Cobain's Last Days, fell very flat to me. I just didn't feel moved by it. Yeah. Uh, and so maybe I'm thinking this is maybe a case of He's coming off of my own private Idaho, I think, if I'm getting the timeline right. And so this is the first step into Hollywood. And I think maybe he does Goodwill Hunting next after this, which makes sense because he's met Casey Affleck. Through Casey Affleck, he's going to meet Ben and then um, Matt Damon, who've written the script. Uh, And so... uh, (laughs) Sorry, I whispered Matt Damon. You don't need to tell the audience. Uh, They're not... Uh, but yeah, to die for. I kind of went into it before we watched it, hoping that oh, I'm gonna rediscover a movie that I've kind of glossed over. But came away going, no, I think I had the right opinion that it, it like you said, it's very mid mid tier movie. Yeah, it just there's some. I mean, you have to have speculation when MTV promoted it that hard. Yeah. <laughs> so when I was looking at what films I wanted to include in this 1995 series. I was like, I want to fill in gaps of movies that I haven't seen or I haven't seen in a long time, but also movies that seem to be standouts from 1995 that I wasn't even aware of because, you know, I was 14 and I wasn't as in tune with like foreign cinema as well. You should have been. I know. (laughs) We didn't even have the internet when I was 14. Uh, So underground was a movie that came up very highly rated on letterboxd and it's i think it's highly rated on rotten tomatoes uh and it's a serbian film i think uh 
And so as we were watching the movie, I kept thinking like, okay, I mean, this has a 4.2 out of 5 on Letterboxd, which is a very high average score. But there was just something about it where I'm like, I feel like there's a lot of cultural stuff I'm not understanding here. And while the movie is technically incredible, I feel like I need to do a little more background on this movie and what's going on here. And that's where I stumbled upon, as I called this in our intro, probably one of the most controversial movies we've ever reviewed. Uh, so I'll probably need to give the audience a little background, because if you had asked me before watching this movie, tell me about uh, the formation of Yugoslavia and its subsequent, you know, dissolution. I would have been able to talk in the most general of terms. Yeah. So a little background here is Yugoslavia was a country formed at, after World War One. And it merged um, regions where the ethnic groups of Serbians, Croats, Slovenians, and Bosnians lived. And please forgive me if I'm missing any ethnic groups. Uh, it's a very diverse region. Uh, and it's typically referred to as Southeastern Europe. One thing I've noticed is people from there like to differentiate themselves from Eastern Europe. Uh, and I think they're correct in that their culture, if you had to imagine at least what I could tell from the Serbian culture I saw, seemed very akin to greek culture yeah. there's a lot of uh celebration of life i guess you could say a lot of drinking and reveling but we'll also kind of talk about that too so yugoslavia was formed in world after world war one and existed as a country and then the nazis invaded in world war ii and the nazis caused all sorts of trouble there uh and you had a communist freedom fighter, uh, Josip Tito, who kind of led the fight against the fascists, and he eventually became president of Yugoslavia from post-World War II up to 1980. Okay. Uh, after his death, it sounds like kind of what happened with a lot of uh, communist countries in the European bloc, there was a lot of jockeying for who would come next, but things just kind of dissolved. If you look at like post-Stalin, you kind of see the same thing happening, just this succession of caretakers, but it was kind of clear that the glory days were over. And so we get to the 1990s, which is where I have a little, I mean, the most basic knowledge of just seeing things and passing on TV, uh, where there was a massive civil war that broke out. Yugoslavia is gone, smaller nations are forming, pretty much centered around these ethnic groups like Croatia, Slovenia, like this. Uh, Slobodan Milosevic was the president of Serbia and had been a member of the Yugoslav Communist Party. But from what I get, seemed very much like somebody, he joined what was the dominant political party, but didn't necessarily gel with the ideology of the party, if at that point the Yugoslav Communist Party had any ideology left. Um very much a nationalist and very hyper pro-Serbian. Mm -hmm. And Milosevic was convicted of crimes against humanity in The Hague for the Bosnian genocide. Uh, as a Serbian, I guess he was promoting the inferiority of uh, Bosnian people. And there was an ethnic cleansing done. We watched a movie a few years ago, uh, Kovaris Aida, which was about a, a Serbian translator working with the UN uh, in, it was the Srebrenica massacre, I believe is what it was called, and how the UN not wanting to like cause an international incident essentially handed over Bosnians to Serbians 
uh, and who just systematically like killed them. And then there were further uh, instances of genocide after that. So these are important things to know because Underground is a movie that's very much nostalgic about Yugoslavia. Like the whole movie is predicated on it opens with once upon a time there was a country called Yugoslavia. So already it's it's we know that it really loves the idea of Yugoslavia. The film is directed by a man, Amir Kustarika, who is ethnically Bosnian, but has become very pro-Serbian in his film career. And I do want to differentiate that the people that were predominantly massacred by the Serbians were Bosniaks, which are uh, Muslim Bosnians. So it is seen as a different group, though ethnically tied to Bosnians as a whole. Uh, and then once again, anything I'm getting wrong, please forgive me. This is like, I'm also reading a book on uh, Marxist capital right now. So it's like a lot of this very big complex stuff to try to like disseminate down into podcast room. So the movie Underground focuses on the friendship of Marco and Blackie, who are, uh, I believe, Serbian men who are very anti-fascist, very like supportive of Tito and the communists. And the movie opens with the Nazi bombing of Yugoslavia and then the subsequent takeover. Uh, Blackie is in love with Natalia, who is an actress at the National Theater. She is a Croatian and decides that she would rather cozy up to the sort of Nazi commandant in their city because it provides her with, you know, certain freedoms she wouldn't have if she wasn't cozy with Nazis. Uh, Blackie ends up kidnapping her very convoluted, very Marx Brothers-esque yeah. is the vibe I got from the movie. Uh, and it ends up with uh, Blackie is shot or stabbed. He's injured very badly. He's shot. I yeah. Think. And so there is uh, Marco's grandfather has this massive cellar that's big enough to accommodate a lot of people. And so there's a bunch of communists who are in hiding down there already and so marco takes blackie down there and is like hey i'll check on you i'll take care of you and that's the first act of the movie it takes place during the nazi occupation the second part of the movie takes place during the years of communism in yugoslavia and what marco has done and this is sort of the hook of the movie i think is he's convinced blackie and everyone else that's down in the cellar that the nazis are still in control of yugoslavia despite the fact that Marco is now a prominent member of Tito's like inner circle. And he has the people down in the cellar build guns for him that he then like sells, I think to make money on the black market. And Marco has also married Natalia without Blackie being aware. And I think he told Blackie that Natalia has been imprisoned in a Nazi prison somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, such a lie can't go on for too long we are in a realm of like magic realist kind of fantasy here. And so they are able to stretch it out a little longer than normal. Eventually Blackie becomes aware of what's happening and then escapes from the underground. And that's when the problematic part of the movie really happens. And that is we get to catch up to the nineties and this is 95. The Serbian massacre has happened while this movie, I think was being filmed and it's, Blackie is part of a Serbian 
contingent fighting against these other groups. And there's not a single mention of the genocide. This film was partially funded by the Serbian government, which Milosevic was overseeing at the time. And the film's ultimate conclusion seems to be, it's just so sad that we all can't get along. Uh, But when we die, we can be together again and we can dream of that place that once was. So that was a big preamble, but it's necessary, I think, to understand the context of the movie. Ariana, what did you think of Underground? Uh, so before Seth decided to do a deep dive to understand what was going on, um, we'd watched the film. We both agreed that technically it was a well-made film. But even without knowing all this stuff, we were but very confused. Without knowing that, it was it was at the end a huge fucking mess. Well, it felt constantly contradictory and unable to like make a point about anything it was so like so natalia natalia let's go back for her for a second she happens to have a brother who's in a wheelchair Mm -hmm. who is disabled and who um she is obviously taking care of and that i think this is not justifying her i think part of the reasons why she decides to work with the uh, with the germans and act for them is to ensure that her brother is not taken from a camp and is not taken away from her and that is something that she does argue with blackie when he goes basically to kidnap her and like force her to marry him yeah and she's enamored with the german guy he's giving her things she's living a nice life he doesn't seem to be abusive to her at all like like, he's a nazi but it's like to her he's not like yeah and forcing himself on her ensuring the fact that her brother survives but i think there's also a there's a thing going on here because early in the film when the nazis do arrive one of the things that was very disturbing once i read the context of it was they use archival footage and then they give a caption of where this is taking place the footage used to depict the nazi arrivals in the slovenian regions and the croatian regions show crowds who are actively applauding and waving to the Nazis, granting them. And then when we see the archival footage from Belgrade, which is predominantly Serbian, the streets are empty. So there's a really, it's like, if you're not familiar with the conflict in this region, you're going to miss it. But it's very much trying to communicate the idea that Serbians fought these evil Nazis, but the dirty Croats and the dirty Slovenians and all the other groups that we view as inferior to us they were they were aiding the nazis and so that's why we have to keep them in check kind of thing and so there's also having to do with the fact that blackie is married uh to a pregnant woman (laughs) who a woman who is pregnant who ultimately dies while giving birth to to her their son and the son basically lives out his like 20 years in the cellar in the cellar not understanding the outside world but knowing that eventually he's going to have to fight and then uh, Marco has a brother who is mentally disabled, who takes care of like Ivan, a zoo, uh, Ivan. So who is I feel is almost supposed to be like the audience. Uh, I'm trying to think of the word. Uh, he sort of represent the audience's point of view in the movie, almost like someone who doesn't really understand what's going on. Yeah, because like we see him ultimately almost through his eyes the pain that he's going through we follow him into old age yeah Yeah. and so it's 
it's conflicting because and the reason that I mentioned this is because first act you're kind of confused as to why Blackie is following this actress who does not want to be with him. He's just horny. That's... It's just like he's horny. He's telling his wife that he's not in love with her, but he's following her around. His wife dies. And during that moment that his wife dies, he's just trying to like convince Natalia to just marry him no matter what. And take care of his son. <laughs> and take care of his son. She doesn't want to do it. And when they run off away, her main concern, who is her brother, they leave him behind yeah. to get killed. Yeah. And she is angry with him. She doesn't want to do anything to do with him. And you're supposed to be like slapstick. Oh, ha, ha, ha. But you're like, like talking about it. It's just like, I'm uncomfortable with it because she obviously doesn't want to be with him. She does not believe in his He literally ties her to his back. Yeah. With rope and then runs off with her tied to his back. And we're just supposed to be like, isn't it just so silly? And so um, later on, we find that like while they're trying to deal with their whole thing, that Marco has a room dedicated to her. Well, yeah, that's (laughs) because they create a love triangle in a very artificial way where it just feels like, hey, we need conflict. Marco's also secretly in love with her. We just haven't really mentioned that. German dude. So it's like, no, we need to bring something else. So Marco's been secretly in love with her, has a whole room dedicated to her and um because i think it would have made more sense if maybe she had somehow tried to manipulate marco and pitted him against blackie but like it's just no marco's just in love with her and then un- like, inexplicably so the years pass after he gets shot they put him under uh, like they put blackie in the cellar area that's basically become like a small city upon itself uh and marco well they have like a tank down there it's crazy marco like ends up being like the second in command to the guy who's like Tito. Tito. and it is just like this weird thing that at some point natalia is going to be sent down there in order to distract blackie from any ideas of coming out to fight because yeah he's itching he's sort of like I'm ready. I want to come up and I want to take these Nazis on. We're going to end this war yeah, finally. And so, yeah. like, he drops her down, but there's also, like, this weird conversation that they're having where she, like, Marco's talking to her, and we have a feeling that something's going to happen, that he's written for her something, and, like, she's like, well, if I'm going to act the scene, I need to act like the whore that you want me to be. And for a second, I thought, Marco's dabbling in plays? Because they're not very clear to me, at the least when I was watching the film, only for her to be dropped down and she's faking to like wanting to be around Blackie and Blackie's there's when I think about there's this all of this stuff surrounding her character that feels incredibly misogynistic but like oh she's a woman and she's an actor and she's just a liar who she wants to be with the Nazis for her own self-interest and she doesn't care about her people (laughs) when it's like yeah there were a lot of people that helped out the Nazis and it was bad that they did it but there were people that did it out of desperation (laughs) uh like and so and then there's also some like weird anti-communist shit in this movie because the that middle section is it implies to me that like the communists were lying to the serbians to keep them in line and to keep them weak and that once the serbians learned of the truth of what was going on they pushed off the shackles of communism and then you know seized their you know divine right over this like, land to control it like since marco is no longer the right hand uh man for like tito suddenly tito like they're like he dwindled over years and then he died like it's a, like, well, it's like marco needed- just becomes like a black market 
arms dealer. But they're also hinting that Marco had such fucking influence. You would think he might have like, like tried that, to bid for president of Yugoslavia. Basically, like their their leader was no longer able to keep in charge of his as he could because he didn't have Marco there. Well, or maybe it's also trying to like protect Tito as like a saint like figure, but then also disparage communism as an ideology like yeah. oh no tito was good but but the rest of it was bad kind of a thing um one thing that was something i didn't get from the movie just because it's not uh, a stereotype or a prejudice that i'm aware of is there are people of serbian descent who do not appreciate what this director amir kustakira has done with balkan people and the way he portrays them uh the complaints that I found was that he's very big on promoting the idea of the quote-unquote savage Balkan. So this very bawdy, boisterous, drunken, sex-crazed thing. Even though Kustakira is a Balkan person, because this stereotype serves a number of functions. For Serbians who were kind of positioning themselves under Milosevic. I don't want to say all Serbians, but the sort of Milosevic Serbian supremacy ideology was trying to position themselves as, you know, well, we are the dominant rightful rulers of this region. Uh, but also that if we do commit violence, it's just kind of our nature. Like it, it has that very like feeling of like a Klingon or a barbarian where they're like, oh, they're just a very savage group of people. And, you know, they can't help it. It's just in their blood kind of a thing. Yeah. But this is also a stereotype that has allowed a lot of Western media to malign Balkan people and often portray them as dumb, unintelligent, base people. Uh, and I mean, you we see it all the time. Anytime like a Slavic person or uh, a Serbian person is portrayed in Western media, particularly American media, that's kind of what you see them as. Yeah. Is, you know, if they're not a Russian mobster, then they're you know, an overly hairy, gruff figure who isn't very articulate about anything. Like, you aren't going to see a sensitive artist in an American movie who happens to be, like, Serbian or Brosnian or Russian or anything like that. And so Slavoj Zizek, the, uh, I believe he is Slovenian, uh, is on record as saying he despises Amir Kustakira as a director for these reasons I've kind of cited. Uh, and so... It, yeah, it, it's a, a movie that there were like two experiences. There was viewing the movie when it happened and then processing the movie by reading supplemental information and then thinking about it that really reshaped it. On a surface level, it's clear that Kustakira is drawing influence from directors like Federico Fellini. Yeah. Uh, it's very magical realist. It's things happen that don't make sense but because we start with the you know phrase once upon a time it's a signal to us that we're not seeing history as it happened we're seeing a a dream of history you might call it yeah uh and so there's some interesting things like uh ivan because he's the zookeeper the only animal he's really able to save and bring with him down there is a chimpanzee who ages over the course of the movie and I'm sure there's some sort of metaphorical thing behind this chimpanzee that I have not yet cracked yet. Uh, and then there's this whole fantasy system of tunnels that um, Yvonne stumbles across when they finally break out of the cellar, that trucks and cars headed to all these places across Europe 
And I'm sure there's another metaphor embedded in that, like, but I, that I just don't hundred percent get yet. Um, but what I will say is that it, in understanding the underlying things happening in this movie, what was really going on underneath the surface, you start to see the insidiousness of the movie and that it is trying to be this cutesy, inoffensive uh, rewriting of history, essentially. Yeah. Uh, it is, especially when you get to that 90s section, and it is devoid of any detail about why this conflict is happening, who the various parties are in the conflict beyond just Marco and Blackie, because they're not just it's not just marco and blackie there's a larger thing happening here and the fact that this movie came out in 1995 which is in the heart of all of this happening yeah it feels like fascist propaganda <laughs> but like very well made fascist propaganda yeah, like you can't deny that it's not visually like incredible like yeah and it generally has funny parts like um jovan uh blackie's son who kept reminding me of cola scola every time <laughs> i see him like when he finally gets out of the cellar, everything he knows about the world he's had told to him by his father, mainly and other people down there. So like he sees the moon, he was like, "It's the sun," and his dad has to go, "No, no, no, that's the moon." No, he saw the he saw the sun, and he's like, "It's the moon." And then no, no, it's he's, it's the moon because okay. they come out at night, right. and he thinks it's the sun. Uh, and then he was like, "Where's uh like where's the other the uh, where's the other one?" It's like it's asleep. Yeah, the sun's asleep. <laughs> uh, there's a an interesting thing where during the the communist portion they're making a film that's meant to be propaganda because marco has convinced everyone that blackie died in battle and is fashioned blackie as this posthumous hero to communist yugoslavia like there's even a statue of him and so they're making a movie about he marco and blackie's uh fight against the nazis and it shows how like overly exaggerated all of this is we're like marco is dragging a riverboat by the anchor to the shore barehanded they have a do a funny thing where like the actors who play uh natalia marco blackie and franz the nazi are played by the same actors who are playing them in the movie underground yeah. but just the way they look now so that the the real characters have been a made to look like they've aged yeah it's also and so it's a funny yeah. like it's a movie kind of commenting on itself as a movie but like I said, ultimately, it leaves me very uneasy. It's the first Letterbox movie where I'm not rating it because I don't know what to think about it. It's such a conflicting, complicated I thing. Feel like this film feels like what Wes Anderson would make if it was American propaganda at times. That I think tongue in cheek kind of thing. The way that things are very like clever. Yeah, that you feel that it's clever, but at ultimately it just, and this is not me lying, something felt wrong once we finished watching this. Like, just, it didn't settle well with me, and I think it was just, like, between, like, the sexism, like... When it was so nostalgic, it, anytime something's that nostalgic, that's, like, red flags for me. Yeah, and it was, like, also towards the end when it's supposed to be, they are in their afterlife but they don't really say that they have died. So Blackie is there, and what we're seeing is that his son is being married again, but this time out in the open, his son has a full head of hair instead of having these balding patches because, you know, he's actually, like, in the afterlife, well-fed and, yeah. and healthy, 
and his wife is there. And then we see like Marco with Natalia like lurking about and he's like, no, come over. And like Blackie's having an actual conversation with his wife and his, you know, he's like telling his wife, oh, I love you so much, which is fucking weird because after she died, he doesn't mourn her. Warn her. He's not like looking at a photo of her, calling her a saint. She is not regarded until towards the end. And then it's supposed to be like they're all like partying together, despite the fact that, you know, Marco and Natalia basically like held them captive for yeah, years. Yeah, completely betrayed them. Like in the under. But I, I think I think maybe what's going on here is if this is, you know, pro-Serbian propaganda. And Blackie is representing Serbia. What they're doing is trying to frame it. We we're not wanting to reject you. We forgive you of all the horrible things you did. However, Milosevic and the people that supported him, their ideology was centered around the idea of, oh, and we need to Yugoslavia be great if we got it back. However, we need to just make sure Serbians are top dogs in all of this. Yeah. And all of these other ethnic groups will be, you know, inferior to the Serbians who should be in charge of the region. Which is basically like they're just continuing what like World War II was all about. But well, it's, it's different. not like, even that. It's it's <laughs> regional conflicts that, from what I can read, have been going on for a very long time. Yeah. And it's just, it's propagating this sort of tribalistic nonsense that is antithetical to communism and much more ironically in league with fascism yeah. uh, because it's, I mean, in this movie, even though they want to say the Nazis are bad, it is so fascistic in that it's inventing a dream to history. It's very sunk into the sort of mystical thinking, which is the way fascism perpetuates itself. Uh, communism is very scientific to a fault sometimes it can be it can sort of ignore aspects of humanity by how scientific it can be fascism is of course on the opposite end of the spectrum it's very much about you know oh this sort of undefinable human drive and like these mystic powers beyond our understanding when you think about like hitler and all of the occult shit um and so this movie feels more in that vein the dreaming of a place that never really was, because I'm sure if we were able to go back in time or, you know, spend years studying Yugoslavia, you would find that, no, it wasn't this utopian country, that there were conflicts between these ethnic groups, and that, you know, yeah, it was better when everybody was united under one thing, that's always a better thing, uh, but it fell apart, and trying to reunite it in a way that positions one group on top of the others is just going to lead it's just a cycle right you're just going around in circles over and over again uh but yeah it's a movie where i don't know if i'd recommend it because i think most people just first of all wouldn't want to watch the movie it won um i believe the palm door and i yeah i don't think it won an oscar but i think it won the palm door at the Cannes film festival and i did see a lot of people uh, with serbian backgrounds saying that it disgusts them that the Cannes Film Festival would award this movie and that they think it it had to be out of ignorance. Yeah. And I think most of the positive reviews on Letterboxd are also out of ignorance of... Yeah, because... It's superficial watching of the movie. Yeah, because, this, again, it's not a common knowledge that we are given to begin with. Well, even when it was happening, I can remember, you know, I'm 14 years old. I should be cognizant enough to know what's going on. It was confusing watching American media cover it. I just remember being like, oh, really bad things are happening. I don't really understand who the group, because it was, it's not a binary conflict. You have all this you know, multifaceted ethnic groups, 
And then you also have, you know, subgroups within ethnic groups. And so the one thing I would point to is that it would be worth studying this period because I think this is something that is very potential to happen in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think a civil, an 1860s style civil war is ever going to happen again in the United States because there aren't two standing armies in that way. But I think something like this, like regional, uh, tribal-driven, ethnic group-driven uh, armed conflicts that sort of catch everyday people in the middle of it who are just trying to exist is probably much more likely. And uh, I mean, keep your eyes out for any sort of movies coming out, maybe things coming from uh, the pure flicks genre <laughs> that are similar to underground that are trying to fashion a dreamed history of America rather yeah. than just talking about what actually has happened in America and trying to like deal with that. Well, that was the Pop Cult Podcast for this week, and we hope you enjoyed our episode. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to reviews on popcult.blog that are relevant to this episode. And make sure you also subscribe to be notified when new episodes are up wherever it is you listen to podcasts. If you check out popcult.blog right now, you're going to find we're in the middle of a German New Wave series looking at films directed by Werner Herzog, uh, Rainier Fassbinder, and Wim Wenders, and plenty more. We'll be taking a little bit of a break from that series this coming week, and in honor of Ari Aster's third feature film, Bo is Afraid, coming out, all week long we're going to be looking at the short films of Ari Aster, going back to his work at the American Film Institute, all the way up to more commercial work that he did before Hereditary came out. Uh, if you like what you hear on the podcast, if you enjoy what you read on popful.blog, we would ask that you consider supporting us on Patreon. We've got some different reward levels, different goals. Uh, we want to thank our patrons, Becca and Matt. They both donate at the $10 writer's room level. And with that, they get the option to pick a movie every month that I watch and review. If you do that, you can also include your own comments if you wish. Uh, but please consider supporting us on Patreon to help show your appreciation and help grow the blog and the podcast. Well, until next time, keep listening.